Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And I think that it's all about the historic tourism, but I wanted to try to get people to think about, well, what are some of the graves, you know, in my area? What, what could I go visit if I wasn't going to take a long trip? What are some that are at least in the region? That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Damien Crego talking about the grave sites, burials, and crypts of some of the Patriot Cause's most important figures. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania Press, publishers of Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War and the Politics of Vengeance in the American Revolution by T. Cole Jones, available wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Damien Crego talking about a list of, and some of his favorite, Patriot graves here in North America. Damien's a very interesting figure, very dedicated to history in his local Connecticut, but offers some really great insight, not just into where these prominent figures are buried, but why they're buried there. It's a wonderful article and a very interesting interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Damien Crego. Damien Crego, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Brian. Tell us about your background. Yeah, so uh, I grew up here in Connecticut. Um, I grew up during the Bicentennial, and I think that was formative. Uh, I happened to grow up in a historic town with a lot of Revolutionary War history, a town of Fairfield, on the the coast of Long Island Sound, and uh, lived in a historic neighborhood. I was lucky enough to live across the street from what in town is called the Burr Mansion. Um, it's not Aaron Burr, of course, uh, but his cousin Thaddeus Burr, uh, who, and that house was kind of famous because it kind of looked like a, a smaller version of the White House, a big white mansion with columns. And historically, the important things were that um, John Hancock was married there to Dorothy Quincy, uh, very, just, I think, just before the war, early in the war. And later, the British will burn the mansion in 1779 on one of uh, Governor Tryon's raids on Connecticut. The other thing that was cool about my childhood that got me interested in the American Revolution, I didn't fully appreciate it at the time, but I'd, I'd be out there playing cops and robbers, you know, cowboys and Indians, uh, playing you know, war games with friends of mine in the neighborhood. And Caleb Brewster, who really wasn't a big name in the 70s for us in the Bicentennial, but because of the popularity of the TV show Turn and books about uh, Washington spies and the Culper spy ring, uh, Caleb Brewster, who was uh, ranked a captain later on for the what became the Revenue Cutter Service and later the Coast Guard, he was buried in the cemetery across the street from my childhood home um, behind Burr Mansion. And never took note of it at the time, but I just thought it was really interesting that he was there. Um, and I go back to that cemetery routinely. 
I earned my uh, bachelor's and, and master's degrees in history, bachelor's from Hillsdale College of Michigan, uh, master's from Colorado State. I always knew I wanted a major in history. It was just an, a natural thing for me in high school. I, I went to a public high school in Connecticut and just loved my, uh, I think it was formative that I loved my social studies teachers. And um, the ironic thing is that most of my degree work was European and world history. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, this was kind of how I wanted to get more into the American Revolution starting 10 years ago. And so just to kind of segue the, the, the last question into this one, I realized that people love what's in their backyard. And, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this article. Is that people love the history that is around them. What, what's the local interest? What, what ties in with historic tourism? That's a lot more difficult to do with European or world history. Um, if my audience is primarily American and, and when I go around giving talks, it, it tends to be, I'm, I'm giving talks somewhere locally, Connecticut, New York, or New Jersey, uh, sometimes elsewhere. And specifically, tactically speaking, I knew that, um, I, I happen to own, my wife and I are lucky to own the general Jebediah Huntington house here in Norwich. And, and that's where I'm, I'm speaking from, uh, tonight. And what's interesting is he's an unheralded general. He wasn't as famous as his childhood uh, neighbor who lived about a half mile away, Benedict Arnold. Uh, but unlike Arnold, he was always loyal to our country and to George Washington. And that was one of the reasons that my wife and I bought this house. We just thought it was so interesting, his story and, and his brother's story, because his younger half-brother is the second owner of this house. And he became a general and U.S. congressman. And he's also buried in the same cemetery plot. And it dawned on me when local historical society was trying to add publicity about the burying ground across the street from our house, that they failed to mention how unique this particular Huntington Creek was, because I suddenly realized, it's, I had never thought about it until um, a couple of weeks before I wrote this article, it might be the only patriot grave in the United States where three generals are buried together. You know, in this particular case, we're talking both militia and Continental Army, uh, the dad, Jabez or Jabez Huntington, was a militia major general, so it's his crypt, and he died in 1786. And his two sons, Jedediah and Ebenezer, who I mentioned already, uh, Jedediah starts out as a colonel, becomes a brigadier general. Ebenezer starts out a captain, rises all two up to lieutenant colonel, and then he's a brigadier general in the Quasi War with France uh, in 1798. I don't think there's another cemetery plot that has three generals from one family in, in one crypt or family plot. Um, so I thought, you know, that got me thinking, what are some other interesting Patriot grace in the American revolution that I could talk about? And of course the obvious one would have to be George Washington. Everyone has to start there. Probably the most important person on this list, certainly probably the most important in American history, perhaps uh, is George Washington. Tell us about his grave site. Sure. Um, because we were able to dig, uh, go on a deeper dive, I guess I should say, than I was able to for space constraints, you know, constraints in the, uh, in the Journal of American Revolution page feature is the fact that there's a whole backstory. He had put in his will that the family vault there at Mount Vernon was in disrepair. He wasn't impressed with it. He felt that because of its failing status structurally, 
that he and Martha should be placed in a new vault at some point following his death. And there wasn't anything specific about it, but, you know, somewhere on the, on the farm, preferably uh, near the gardens that he loved to tend to so much as did Martha. And following his death, and, and Martha, of course, survived him, Congress stepped in and said, well, look, we want to erect a memorial to him, which, of course, they didn't get to right away. That doesn't happen until decades later. And we want to bury him in a crypt in Washington, D.C. She actually signed off on that. She said, that's fine with me. Even though his will had stipulated that he'd be buried here, I understand it's important to our country's history. Well, Congress never got around to it. <laughs> and that should entertain a lot of the listeners. And it just never happened. And so for whether that's so advantageous or not, uh, it fell back then to the original plan of, of honoring his will, his personal wishes, that he'd be interred along with Martha in a new grave. So the, they, both of their remains were, were taken out once she died. She was in the crypt next to him temporarily um, for a few decades, and then uh, they are reinterred at this more formal uh, crypt. It is more stately, it's larger and, and more spacious, uh, more headroom than the previous one. And, um, of course, there's this understanding that it, the, the, the gates almost never open. And, and I have to say, they seldom open, but there's this misunderstanding that only one group or another um, has the rights to have the gates open for them. And in actuality, um, and, and I've been there, of course, several times it, over the years, and first went as a kid, it's always opened uh, on his birthday, and as far as I know, also on the date of his death, which, of course, is December 14th. You mention a trio of figures from Connecticut uh, in your article. Uh, who were they, and, and tell us about their burial sites. They all have an interesting story. Um, I kind of already told half the story with the Huntington Trio, but let me tell a little bit more about their actual service. Uh, because it just so happens I'm writing a book about them, as well as some other Connecticut Patriot leaders, and I'm about halfway through that uh, book writing process. The, the Huntingtons uh, were probably, arguably, the family that gave the most to this country in the American Revolution in terms of number of people, uh, because in addition to Dad being Militia Major General and the two sons I've already spoken about who served throughout the war, both Ebenezer and Jedediah served from the spring of 1775, all the way up through the end of 1783. Um, and in fact, both of them, uh, both Ebenezer and Jedediah, instrumental in helping on Steuben and Knox create the Society of Cincinnati in the spring and summer of 1783 at Mount Gullion and West Point over a series of uh, meetings and letters. Um, Jedediah's high point is to serve in heavy combat at the Battle of Monmouth in New Jersey in very hot days. At the end of June 1778, he will suffer with his soldiers at Valley Forge. His, his letters are fascinating to read because he's always looking out for the common soldier. And in fact, unlike other generals at Valley Forge, he lived in a simple 16 by 25 foot uh, log cabin, like many of the soldiers did. And he also lost a wife. Uh, his first wife committed suicide up in Boston during the siege of Boston. So I, as far as I know, he's the only general who lost a wife due to suicide. Um, tells a compelling, gripping story. Ebenezer, like I said, Rodney War, I should say one note about him in Yorktown. He is um, a light infantry 
commander and switches over at the last minute to serve as um, aide, acting aide to Major General Benjamin Lincoln, who, of course, is Washington's second in command during that siege with the help of the French, and uh, becomes later a U.S. congressman. And uh, I just find them fascinating, and the fact that their brothers also uh, were in supporting roles. Major Joshua Huntington, uh, the third-ranking brother, helped build the only U.S. Navy frigate built here in Connecticut called the USS Confederacy. Um, it has nothing to do with the Civil War. It was named for the Articles of Confederation. And uh, that ship was supposed to bring John Jay to France from Philadelphia in 1779 and was struck by a hurricane and completely dismasted. So they had to seek shelter all the way down in Martinique. And that, uh, that ship had an unlucky history to it, and yet because it winds up getting captured by the French in 1781, but it's arguably the most beautiful frigate in U.S. Navy history. That's what I've been reading online from model makers and naval historians in their writings. So the Huntington's are a very interesting family that way. Quickly, the other two were Major General Israel Putnam, famous in the French and Indian War, of course, and also uh, in the American Revolution. Uh, the legend has it that he was the one who said, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes at Bunker Hill. Um, it's dis- disputable. Um, along with John Stark and, and a couple others. Uh, but he was so legendary that when he is buried in Brooklyn, about half hour north of here, in a small farming town that he lived in, he was such a legendary fighter uh, that tourists would come and chip off pieces of his headstone for decades. And finally, um, the state legislature and local uh, history lovers in Putnam descendants decided they needed a, a, a new grave monument for him. They couldn't have his current gravestone continue to be chipped off. And so that it was removed and put on display in the Connecticut State Capitol under glass, where it's been for over 100 years. And he's the only uh, major general I can think of who actually has an equestrian statue over his grave. And uh, it's quite remarkable. And then the third one is in a completely different setting, much more of an urban setting, Major General David Wooster, who at the time was um, actually in the militia at the time of his death, but he had been a brigadier general in the Continental Army during the uh, Canadian campaign, and uh, because of politics, decided to resign his commission and return to serve in the Connecticut militia. And he had a lot of experience, like Putnam, in the French and Indian War, served in many campaigns. And where he is buried, after he's mortally wounded, as part of the Battle of Ridgefield campaign, it's actually wounded mortally uh, in Danbury, just north of Ridgefield. And uh, his son um, is also killed, as I recall, in that. I think we'd have to fact check that. But the important part is he's buried up on a hill in a cemetery in uh, the small city of Danbury. So it's just a completely different setting than, than uh, Putnam's or the Huntington Graves. And what's impressive about him is the, I, I don't have the dimensions in front of me, but I would like to say that the obelisk over his grave is about 60 feet tall. It was, uh, I think, made around 1854, completely covered in Masonic symbolism. It's, it's really quite impressive. Of all the great uh, images in your article, the one that stands out to me is that of John Paul Jones. His crypt is, is fabulous. Could you tell us about it? Sure, sure. Um, that's, a, that's a great question, Brady. Uh, it is an impressive um, 
Crip, and and just so amazing because what it struck you know, and I mentioned that in my article when you're struck as a ten year old to see this uh, because of my my mother was a Navy nurse. There's a whole backstory about John Paul Jones too. Um, he had died. He had gone over to France to try to recover the remains of some uh, U.S. Navy sailors and officers who had died in France. He also recovered some prisoners. And, of course, this was a tumultuous time in France's history. You know, you had in 1789 the French Revolution, and then there's chaos following that. Well, he dies of uh, kidney disease while he's on this trip over there in 1792, trying to get the release of uh, taxes and return of remains. Um, and prior to his burial, um, funds have been donated to preserve his remains by mummification. And that's what's so kind of morbidly fascinating is that when he was reinterred in 1906, you could easily identify his remains because of the mummification. Uh, you know, they could get DNA from his hair and so forth. And he wasn't a terribly old man. I think he was in his early 40s when he had passed away. Uh, so this was a joint operation. Uh, the American ambassador to France, uh, folks back in, in D.C. itself, with the cooperation of, of um, the French government, and, of course, the United States Navy. Uh, he's put on a ship, the USS Brooklyn, and there's a flotilla of ships that uh, has fought Navy, John Paul Jones, from France back to the United States. And uh, just some interesting facts here that I didn't get to include in the article. The sarcophagus weighs a massive 21 tons. It was sculpted from black and white marble, and it is supported by bronze dolphins, which, of course... Uh, Submariners of the U.S. Navy will tell you, you know, is what the uh, what they wear on their badge for uh, submarine surface as opposed to surface. Uh, and um, not that he was a submariner, but of course it's it's nautical. And there's all kinds of sea plants and other decorative items. They are cast in bronze, um, as you know. I mean, it, it's just an amazing brick, and of course it's open to the public. Don't know about this year with COVID. I, I don't believe so, but. Uh, the fact that it's so famous in, in naval history lore and that every Navy cadet knows about it, I'm sure is memorized, you know, all kinds of things about it. And uh, as I'm sure it struck you, it's unique. There, there's nothing quite like it in the United States other than maybe perhaps uh, General Grant's tomb in New York City on the Upper West Side, but that's a different war. <laughs> you have a host of New Yorkers in your article. Uh, who are they? Uh, the two, Alexander Hamilton and um, Richard Montgomery. And, you know, it's interesting. They both got overshadowed in so many different ways, uh, both major generals. Uh, well, I should fact check that. I think technically Richard Montgomery was a brigadier general. But Richard Montgomery had married Sarah Livingston, wealthy family. It was much like Philip Schuyler marrying um, into the Van um, Rensselaer family. And um, the Schuylers were very wealthy as well up there in Albany. Um, so the Livingston's socially very prominent. Of course, uh, a Livingston will serve as the uh, judge who will swear in Washington as an inauguration. It's Ben Franklin's kind of pet project. You know, if Churchill was to, uh, to Gallipoli, maybe that's what Ben Franklin was to the idea that Canada could be a 14th state. Uh, he felt that somehow the the Quebecois, the French speakers, would want to um, rise up and want to join in rebellion 
uh, against the British, and that was not the case. And of course, uh, Richard Montgomery winds up dying. Uh, he is uh, shot fatally in the head at uh, Quebec. I've been to the site where he died. There was a plaque there on, on the wall, uh, stone fortifications at Quebec in the lower lower city. Benedict Donald, the first of many times he'll be wounded in the battle. He's trying to attack from the north. He, he lives through this one, of course. And um, Daniel Morgan is not famous yet, but he, he is also wounded in the battle. So Richard Montgomery is floated down uh, on a ship, some kind of barge, Lake Champlain, and then on um, Hudson River. And they, it passes, of course, the Livingston Estate, Livingston Manor, which you can go visit to, uh, to this day. And there is Sarah Livingston Montgomery with her binoculars or spy scope, I suppose, telescope of the day, uh, watching her husband's remains coming down the river. And then, of course, there's a formal funeral at um, St. Paul's Church. Franklin makes the arrangements for the beautiful marble um, sarcophagus that he's put in. It actually, uh, marble itself comes as a gift from King Louis the Sixteenth of France, and it um, is beautiful and unique in the sense that you could drive by on Broadway, and because you're focused on the road and the traffic and the pedestrians, you could miss it. But what makes it so special is you can see it equally from the outside and the inside. It straddles that wall. I think that would be the eastern wall of the uh, St. Paul's Chapel. Oh, uh, Alexander Hamilton not far south of Montgomery's Grace, uh, or sarcophagus of St. Paul's at Trinity Church. So you just head a couple more blocks down Broadway, and there's Alexander Hamilton's Grace, which hadn't been terribly well-maintained, I have to say, until the musical came along. The, the musical Hamilton uh, resulted in the Trinity Church cleaning it, having it cleaned, and I happened to be a member of what is called the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society, or a circle of Hamilton scholars. And it was wonderful. To, I've spoken at his grave twice. It's, it's the most spectacular sight because you're looking at all the skyscrapers uh, peering down all around you on all four sides. You're very close to Wall Street as well. And, of course, represents Alexander Hamilton as acumen for, uh, for finance and, and uh, banking systems. But what people don't realize, and, and it's great that the grave says this, he finishes the American Revolution as a colonel. But what's fascinating is he is actually Washington's second in command during the closet war with France, such that when Washington dies, December 14, 1799, Hamilton immediately becomes the ranking general in the U.S. Army as a major general. And a lot of folks don't know that about him. They just think of him as the guy who was shot by Aaron Burr and is in on a $10 bill. And, okay, maybe they know enough. They, they know he was aide to Washington. For several years, and a very important one, his most trusted aide uh, throughout the war. But the fact that he was the ranking general, and the fact that he did so much to get the federal model of the army going with the military academy at West Point, and so forth, that those were all important things that a lot of people don't realize about Hamilton. I spoke about that for C-SPAN. I spoke on Hamilton's military accomplishments for C-SPAN uh, last July. You mentioned that. Some people, most notably Benedict Arnold and the Marquis de Lafayette, were intentionally left out of this list. Talk about that thought process. Yeah, I felt that because the readership for during the American Revolution is overwhelmingly 
from the United States. I want to be an advocate for historic tourism. I could have included folks who were buried in Europe or perhaps even the Caribbean, but I felt it just seemed more cohesive a scope for me to pick from some anyone from eastern Mississippi, because that's where they would be buried uh, in, in the continental United States. And I felt it was difficult to argue how you put Arnold in there given his treachery. Um, he's certainly extremely important. I would argue he's the second most important general besides Washington himself. He's certainly the bravest battlefield general on the Patriot side. But given everything he had done in his treachery, uh, including a lot of folks don't realize burning down Richmond, um, and as well as, of course, the uh, infamous raid here in, in Connecticut, in Groton and New London in September of 1781, I just felt it was difficult to argue that I should include him. And he happens to be buried uh, in a church crypt with his wife, uh, Peggy, of course, uh, in London. And I've had several friends. I haven't been to the grave yet. I've been to London several times. So I've been meaning to get to his grave. I know others have. And they said, it's, it's funny because they do the Sunday school as well as a weekday, I think kindergarten or something for the kids in the basement of the church where he is. So there's all these little kids, you know, playing or making noise right by uh, where he and his wife are buried there. And of course, the other obvious omission was Marquis de Lafayette in Paris. Beautiful grave, it's in Paris, it's open to the public, people can go in in open air, it's it's outside the the church. But I just felt um, it was a cleaner scope to try to keep it to to here in the eastern United States. You have also an addendum of honorable mentions, pretty important people as well. Uh, Who were they? Well, the ones that I had to think about, and and I had to... You know, when I when I wrote that article, I was thinking about doing a series on grave sites. So I knew a lot of generals and senior officers in here. I want to include Joseph Plum Martin because he's just such a great story as a soldier. And so that meant I had to bump some folks. And names that come to mind are John Stark of New Hampshire, Daniel Moore, just such an amazing fighter. I think a lot of folks don't realize how important he was, um, you know, not only in the Battle of Saratoga, but in the Quebec campaign, how close they were to taking Quebec City in that last night in 75, and then the Southern campaigns, of course. Um, but the other one, and, and this would be my honorable mention as well, is my key one, is uh, Baron von Steuben. You know, he's the Inspector General. He's a larger-than-life character. Uh, we all know the stories about him cursing in several languages as he's trying to train the troops drilled in at Valley Forge that famous winter and spring. Um, I, my wife and I have been to Rennes in New York where he is buried. I was uh, in search of my patriot ancestor's grave, Private Richard, uh, or Abraham, rather, Kriego. Turned out he wasn't buried in Rennes and he just completed his application, which was approved in 1830 from Rennes and dying 13 years later in another rural town. But of course, while we were in town, we said, well, we've, we've got to go see von Steuben's grave. And you're driving towards the mountains, and you pull off into the woods, sort of, and there's a log cabin there that's recreated to look like what he lived in in retirement. And you walk into the woods, and there's this sort of King Solomon-like Old Testament-style raised, you know, stone sarcophagus, I suppose. Um, and it's impressive. And, and, and that's the one if I were to do it again, I would have said, okay, Joseph Lamar, you're going to be my soldier article separate from the leaders. 
Elmore Harp uh, fought the straight, but as a number, uh, you know, I wasn't intentionally ranking them besides Washington. You got to put Washington number one, I think, but fun straight would have been, you know, eight, nine, or ten, if you will. How does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? I thought that was another great question. I think it's about readers of this article having an experience that it inspires them to want to make a road trip and so forth and expand their imaginations. Hopefully they have the ability. I, I tried to make this an article that was wide in geographic scope that whether it was Henry Knox in Maine or Joseph Plum Martin, that, that one of them would be from Maine and he would all you know, go all the way down south to Savannah with, uh, with General Green. And you know, I just didn't want it to be weighted towards any one area, um, although they all, I think, are kind of hugging the eastern coast by chance. It wasn't by design. Um, and I think that it's all about the historic tourism that I wanted to try to get people to think about, well, what are some of the graves you know, in my area, what, what could I go visit if I wasn't going to take a long trip over some that are at least in the region and, and try to get sort of an intellectual brainstorm going for people because there are websites like Find a Grave that are so well known and there are many organizations like the VFW and the Daughters of the American Revolution that do so much to maintain our graves. Um, you can think of graves across America or wreaths across America at Christmas time for the veterans. And I realized that I, you know, I checked the German American Revolution's website, and no one had done something like this, um, you know, as, as a list of ten. And I, I just thought it'd be interesting to bring that together so that people could think more about, well, who, are, you know, what are some cemeteries near them that they could visit, or, you know, did people realize what some of the graves actually look like? They might have read about these generals, but did they really know that John Paul Jones was, for example, buried at the Coast Guard, I mean, the Naval Academy in Annapolis in such an elaborate uh, crypt. Damien Crego, thank you for joining us. Well, uh, great to have um, me on for the first time. I really appreciate this, Brady. Um, I was overwhelmed by the, by the reader response, and uh, um, it, was, it was an honor to have so many folks respond to me that way, and I, I appreciate you reaching out and, and having me on um, for your program. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.